Engaging, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. He has other abilities to pull money, such as from the Treasury, the forfeiture. This is from illicit crimes that people have done. So he's got about $600 million there. He's got $2.5 billion from inside Department of Defense to be used for counter-narcotics to fight drugs as well. This is where that should be used. And then he's looking at Milcons, the uh, military construction items. It's stunning to me that one of the chief law enforcement officers of the land, the acting head of the FBI, would go on national television and say, oh, by the way, I remember a conversation with the deputy attorney general about trying to find if we could replace the president under the 25th Amendment. It has to be on the basis of a medical or psychological incapacity, not on the basis of even the most extreme crimes, which there's no evidence were committed. But even if they were, that would not be a basis for invoking the 25th Amendment. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here and making your home at American Family Radio. I'm so excited about today's program. So we're going to be digging into a few things. We, We have this Emergency, emergency, emergency. Yes, it is an emergency. Does President Trump have the authority? So we're going to talk about that. Um, and then we have to discuss finally, because I've been kind of holding off, uh, Andrew McCabe's 25th Amendment comments, the attempted bureaucratic coup, which this is a refrain that we're hearing from quite a few people of note about what was done after the election of Donald Trump. It was as if a safety mechanism had been employed. It was like an automatic switch was kicked and all of a sudden people were acting in ways that they wouldn't behave in if someone of their own political persuasion were in office. We're going to get into that as well. Right now I want to go into the daily confession and it's about spending time with God. So first off, it's not normal for people to say, I'm tired of spending time with God or I'm weary of spending time with God or I'm not excited about spending time with God. (laughs) You don't hear people saying that. People don't say, you know what? Uh, I just don't have time for it. It's not something that's important to me. Although sometimes people will admit that they don't organize their day in a way that allows them to have a quiet time first thing in the morning. And usually it's because we're reactive. We get up and we immediately launch off into things that we're doing. Or, you know, we're part of the smartphone generation and the phone is also your alarm clock now. And so when the phone goes off or the alarm clock, you pick it up and start checking email and looking at your calendar and doing your schedule, leap out of bed and, you know, you're off for the day. And so it has to be something intentional that we're doing that we say, this is a priority. This is what I want to seek first and then make it happen. But when people talk about that, it can almost prompt a feeling of, um, it's like, oh, you know, you, you feel guilty about not doing it. And then you feel even more guilty about how long you've been thinking, I need to make this a priority. So today I want to discuss how we can find a rhythm and practice being in God's presence. Practice meaning something that you make it a point and an effort to do on a regular basis. It's an appointment that you keep with yourself not out of a feeling of guilt or a feeling of, you know, this is something that I'm supposed to do, but rather because it can improve everything else that happens during the day. It can set the tone and smooth the path for a lot of things that we have going on. And if if you have a very fast paced, stressful existence, as most of us have, and you're dealing with a lot of moving parts, meaning people, schedule, 
a lot of responsibilities, then anything that would make that more smooth, anything that would make that easier for you is something you're going to be interested in. And oftentimes getting started in a new habit is more about the attitude that we have towards that habit than it is about the habit itself. The habit itself can be very rewarding, but getting into the actual mechanism of making something happen repetitively until it's natural, it's second nature, it's something that is on autopilot for us and we're not thinking about it, that's the trick. So first off, let's go ahead and, and you know, real talk here. All of us want to be connected to God, to deeply connect with him and to make him a priority. Philip Yancey asked a question, how do we reach for the invisible God? Well, the trick is to make it a habit. And so this habits sometimes can be seen as empty rituals or things that we're doing because we're, you know, we're, we're this type of person or that type of person and whatever floats your boat. You know, sometimes when you look at a person, you say, Hey, that person's athletic or that person's physically fit. We often ascribe that to something natural that they're doing naturally, something that they, um, they have an innate ability to do. But the fact is at the beginning, when that person became athletic, it was something that they had to prioritize and make into a habit, which means there were times they didn't want to do it, that they did it anyway to get the results. And then after prolonged exercise or prolonged practice of that habit, it becomes then something that looks natural to outsiders. So we don't see the, the part where this person was getting up and really struggling to do it. We only see the, the after result, which is the person is very thin, energetic, and physically fit. You might feel that way about someone you know at church or a friend who regularly attends, you know, church more than once a week. She's maybe, you know, very, very involved in Bible studies. Maybe you think, oh, you know, she, it just comes naturally for her. It may be something that she was very interested in and has more of a natural propensity to because it's a priority for her. But in the end, it's the habit that makes it appear so effortless to others. So first off, talking about finding a rhythm. Consistent spiritual discipline becomes a rhythm for living in which we can grow more intimately connected to God. And that's a quote from John Ortberg. He's the author of The Life You've Always Wanted. So we're actually tapping into the power source. You know, I, I love to use the analogy that in anything we have in our home that has a power cord, if it has an internal battery, it can work away from the power, you know, without being plugged in for a certain amount of time but at some point, you're going to get a little warning that that backup battery is depleted and you've got to plug it back in. You've got to give it a live jolt of electricity from a power source. And we're like that too. We're tapping into our source of strength and faith and joy. And it's a radical change that the more time we spend with God, the more we become like him. So it's not something that you feel on, on the everyday. It's more like, I've been spending time with God regularly for three weeks, let's say, for example, and then something out of the ordinary happens, something that would normally, you know, ignite my temper and, and send me over the deep edge and really ruin my day, kind of derail everything I have going on. But instead of that happening, because I've been in my quiet time and I've, I've, I've got that peace, it doesn't happen. Instead, I'm able to navigate that situation. It's still an annoyance. It's still something that, you know, could possibly derail my plans, but 
through spending time with God, I'm able to be more like him and be much calmer in my reaction to, you know, a a huge problem that might happen. And so it's not about gaining more knowledge, although we do learn by reading the scriptures. It's not absorbing a set of facts because our faith is more than just a set of beliefs that we basically read once or twice and then we know them and that's it. It's about a relationship with God. We want to know him in the same way that he wants to know us. So we're going to have to do it regularly, right? You don't just spend a few minutes with your husband or your wife, uh, you know, once a week and expect to have a good relationship. Anything that you want to have a strong bond in, you're going to have to commit yourself to and do regularly. But it doesn't have to be boring. Um, you know, it, the time of day that you have the clearest mind is when you want to do it. And for, for I've had seasons in my life where the best time for me to have a quiet time is right before bed because it slows the day down and it gives me a chance to really get into something that has nothing to do with my work, family, obligations, stressors. It just completely smooths out. And then in the morning when I wake up, I'm even lifted up because I've done that. So don't feel stuck with it has to be the first thing in the morning. I know there are some people out there who say that it does, but God is not, um, there's nothing legalistic about this. It's about finding the time that works best for you and then committing to it. So explore strategies for times when it works for you. Maybe it's a lunchtime, quiet time. It, you know, is the pop in the middle of the day that sets everything up. As long as it's not something that gets pushed aside by other commitments or surprises. And don't give up if it seems hard at first. Any new um, any new task that you take on, especially if it's something you're really committed to, you're going to have obstacles kind of test your resolve. Just push through. Keep doing the, the one best thing, which is setting aside that time. And you can put it on your calendar. That makes it much more real as well. So we have to take time to focus on what is above and develop fresh habits And maybe that starts off with using a journal. I found that to be very helpful for me. Um, Reading a psalm each day, writing out your prayers to God, keeping a list of answered prayer. That is something that is, is a phenomenal practice that can increase the amount of gratitude that you feel. Um, Also the kind of Bible that you're actually using. I was getting frustrated with a Bible that I was actually, it was a gift to me from someone that I really, I love dearly and, she's passed away. And so I felt obligated to continue to use that Bible, even though it, it was not, it wasn't serving me well because it was missing a few things that I'd come to realize some other Bibles had in them. And so I looked and looked and kind of felt like I couldn't find a Bible that I liked. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to buy a Bible today. And I went to the church bookstore and this was about, I'd say, uh, maybe two months ago I went, I bought, I purchased this Bible. Now, I'm not into the whole gender thing, like the men should have their own Bible, women should have their own Bible, but this Bible is called the Women's Study Bible. And I took the opportunity because they do the engraving of your name on the cover for free at my church if you purchase a Bible there. So I I did that too and picked the Bible up. And it's not that that makes such a huge difference, but sometimes the aesthetics can be really important. This Bible has a lot of extra um, commentary in it. And it has different fonts for the titles of the different books of the Bible. The, the chapters have different little fonts. 
And it has a lot of annotation where you can look down and read what historians say about the time or, or different facts that aren't in the actual text. And I can tell you just over the past couple of months, I find myself reading my Bible more because I have a Bible that is much more interesting to me and much more engaging for me. And it has some of the things that I really, I, I once was a, the kind of person who looked down on people who have tabs. I know the Bible, but there are certain books of the Bible that I always struggle to find. And so it, it's, it's easier to occasionally be able to refer to these tabs. So I'm sharing this because it's been so helpful for me. And I can't remember if it was someone from Bible study who said, oh, I, I, I like this Bible. It was somebody, somebody in my life was just gushing over their Bible. And I thought, maybe that's the issue that I'm having is that I need a Bible that will work for me. And this one is, I think it's New King James Version. Yeah, New King James. Um, and it has a leather bound cover. And it's really, it's just, and, and there are maps in here. It's just easier to use the I think the the font in it is a little larger as well um, in, in the text. So it's just, it's an easier Bible for me to use. And so, you know, why would I spend five minutes telling you about this Bible that I've purchased? Because if if you're not using a Bible that you like, that works for you, one that is really suited to you, then it can be hard to integrate this practice of really spending time in God's word and pouring over the scriptures. It can be harder. And then for my techie folks out there, Technology is our friend at this stage in, you know, the, the human timeline, if you will, (laughs) we have so much access through our phones and our laptops to not just scripture, but commentary and things that will read it to us. So if you're, if you don't have time um, to pour over things, you know, early in the morning and nighttime is when you're tired and you're, and that's not when you're fresh, you can always get the YouVersion app and spend time listening in your commute, whether you're riding the train or whether you're driving, you can spend that time listening to an audiobook on CD. Uh, but specifically on version, it will read the Bible to you. And I think you can even pick the accent. So I, I'm, I'm so excited about having my new Bible to, to pour over and to learn in. And I've already learned so much just in the couple of months I've had it. And I encourage you to do the same, find one that suits you and rekindle your efforts at doing a a serious commitment to connecting with God. You can step away from your same old routine, pray over this, invite God to do a new thing in your life. You can speak to God all during the day, but making that quiet time to study the word is so important. And I hope you'll commit to doing that. When we get back, we're going to have more Stacey on the Right for you here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You can't squeeze more into three days, and we will, in Washington, D.C. on our Spiritual Heritage Tour. In June and in September, we're going to the Capitol, Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, Lincoln Memorial, the Korean and Vietnam Memorials, the Iwo Jima Memorial, the Arlington National Cemetery, the White House, that's outside, Jefferson Memorial, and the National Archives, and... We're going to Mount Vernon on that Saturday of our tour. So, so much to see, so much to do, and it includes lectures and talks from Stephen McDowell, who will be our historian along the way. For more information on these June or September Spiritual Heritage Tours, 
and the separate tour to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. For all the information on this, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. The editorial board of the Wall Street Journal asked a good question the other day. They wondered who's afraid of socialism. Their argument was that the new progressive agenda looks like government control over the means of production. Isn't that the textbook definition of socialism? The president has been criticized for saying that there are new calls to adopt socialism in this country. But Democrats in Congress and pundits in the media have protested that the socialist label doesn't apply to them. So the editors decided to take a look at a few of the items on the agenda. Medicare for All is one example. Senator Bernie Sanders and 16 other senators proposed a program that would replace all private health insurance with a federally administered single-payer health care program. The government would decide what care you would receive, what to pay doctors and hospitals, and even which drugs would be on the formulary. That sounds like socialized medicine. The Green New Deal is also on the progressive agenda. Nearly four dozen House Democrats and several Democratic presidential candidates have endorsed the plan. As I've written about in a previous commentary, it requires the country to be carbon neutral within 10 years. This will not happen, but even the attempt would require a massive amount of government intrusion into all of our lives. That really looks like socialism. To pay for these and other progressive agenda items, proponents call for a level of taxation never seen before. Democratic candidates are talking about everything from a 70% tax rate on higher incomes to a wealth tax on assets in this country, as well as those held abroad. This tax scheme also looks like socialism. We all know the phrase, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it is a duck. Politicians and the media can protest that the socialist label doesn't apply. Most of us know that it does. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. First of all, does the president have the authority? And the answer is yes. Since 1976, when the law passed, presidents have declared more than 60 emergencies. But also look to this. When the federal government doesn't act, governors have the responsibility that they can declare an emergency. And in 2005, in Arizona, Janet Napolitano, who then became DHS secretary for Obama, declared an emergency because of what was happening on the border. So did New Mexico governor Bill Richardson. And Bill Richardson cited the lack of movement by the federal government. So the president, one, has the authority. Yes, it is a crisis and emergency along our border. First of all, Think about the human trafficking that is happening. Yeah. Think about the children that are being moved across these countries. But think about the amount of drugs and how many thousands of Americans are dying. And most of that is coming through the southern border. So the president, one, has the authority. Yes, it is an emergency that has been shown before. And I believe at the end of the day, this wall is going to be built, not sea to shining sea, but about 200 miles. And that was Leader McCarthy uh, talking about um, this this national emergency declaration. Now, look, the, I, let's let's make it clear, because I, I want to share this quote with you first. This quote from McConnell. Leader, so McConnell, actually, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, 
actually sent out this statement saying President Trump's decision to announce emergency action is a predictable and understandable consequence of Democrats' decision to put partisan obstruction ahead of the national interest. I urge my Democratic colleagues to quickly get serious, put partisanship aside, and work with the president and our homeland security experts to provide the funding needed to secure our borders as we begin the next round of appropriations. Now, it might be kind of a surprise to you because when I was reading this statement, I thought, well, wait, wait a minute. Okay. So there's actually still a chance that if the Democrats don't want the embarrassment of having the president use emergency funds and moving money around without their input, that they could simply, in the next round of appropriations, add a rider on that gives the president the wall funding that he needs without the caveats, without the strings, without all that garbage. And I can tell you, if, if, it, if it were me and I was, you know, a, a hardcore liberal Democrat, but I didn't want the history books to show that the president used a national emergency to go around me for something as fundamental as border security, I would be in a huddle saying, you know, well, we, we, we blew the chance to get the DACA recipients legalized and maybe we don't want them legalized because that's a bully pulpit we can always jump onto and use it to bash Republicans. But we do need to be on the side of border security because 2020 is coming and this is real. And even with a media blockout, a lot of Americans who didn't know anything about other Americans being killed by illegal aliens now know about it. And that's something that's going to bother them. And, and I know there are people who can, can, they compartmentalize. They say, well, that's not me. That has nothing to do with me. I live in a community where no one has ever been you know, killed by an illegal alien. It just doesn't apply to me. And we can all do that, can't we? If, if the community we live in is not impacted by an issue, it's easy to say, that's not something I'm concerned with. That's not an issue I'm voting on. In fact, I recommend that people choose issues to vote on, but the fundamental ones that impact eternity, that should be our, our perspective. But we're also talking about advocating for lawlessness here. So if you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I, I, I don't have anything to do with illegal aliens. I don't have a lot of them in my community. We don't have gang violence in the suburbs. And I'm not interested in, you know, President Trump using these people, these women, you know, the, the angel moms, angel dads, whatever, um, to advance his campaign promises. And maybe for you, it's as simple as a campaign promise that he made that some people, tens of millions of people want to see him make good on, and you're not really concerned with that. But isn't that the way it always is just before an issue reaches in and grabs you by the throat? And isn't there a sense of empathy that we can have for every person who tells me I need to be empathetic towards people who are in the country illegally? Um, when I turn the question around and ask them if they have any empathy towards people who they're, they've lost loved ones to illegal alien crime, the reaction is always, well, you know, those are just raw numbers. Well, those, those are just people that, you know, that, that, that's not a lot of, of people. Does it have to be a lot of people if it impacts you personally? No, it doesn't. So this is an issue that we are going to, um, it, it's, it, we have to keep hammering at home. We have to keep talking to individuals who say to themselves, this isn't an issue that impacts me. We have to be relentless with it. In the same way that the media has been relentless in trying to paint Republicans and Trump supporters as these awful, terrible, no good, racist, uh, you know, hate crime purveyors. So yesterday on the show, I was talking about doing this list and we didn't get around to it. We had so much content to cover. 
Um, so we're, I want to do this list and we're going to pivot over to that right now. Um, it's a giant list of mainstream media fueled hate crime hoaxes meant to frame Trump supporters. Now, the first thing you're going to say is, oh, you know, frame Trump supporters. Yeah, exactly. Frame Trump supporters. I'm, I'm not uh, embellishing. This isn't, you know, this is not something that is inflated. It's a huge list. So Brian Stelter and CNN are currently working to pretend that they didn't actually say that Jesse Smollett's hate crime was, you know, one of the worst hate crimes ever and real. And, and they, they were so in his corner without even critically looking at what he'd said. And remember, we already discussed the first the very first hint that this was a hoax was that he said the two guys were wearing MAGA hats and told him that he was in MAGA country. Unbelievable. So let's go back. I love taking a little stroll down um, historical lane. This is right after Donald Trump's election and the Southern Poverty Law Center was stoking panic after a pro-gay Episcopal, Episcopal church, pardon me, in, in Indiana was vandalized with a Heil Trump swastika and anti-gay slur. It turns out that the gay organ player, so an employee of the church, actually spray painted the wall of the church to paint Trump supporters as being against what they were doing there. He was only charged with a misdemeanor and the story, the link to the story. So because people will say, oh, what's your source? I don't believe you. Indie star. Indie star is a mainstream liberal newspaper in, in Indianapolis. So not, not Breitbart. And by the way, Breitbart is extraordinarily uh, trustworthy and they have a fantastic record of doing breaking news reporting and bring stories to the people first. But, you know, anyway, because people have some kind of Breitbart derangement syndrome. So it's like a something that is an affliction that comes on before you get Trump derangement syndrome. You have Breitbart derangement syndrome. It's amazing. Cast your mind back to days after the Pittsburgh massacre. Trump supporters were blamed for Nazi vandalism at a Brooklyn synagogue and fires in a Jewish community. It turns out the perpetrator was a gay black man who'd worked in the city council on an initiative to fight hate crimes. So he's fighting hate crimes of which they had none, no examples. And so what they did, what he did was he decided to make one. He was arrested because he was caught on camera, surveillance camera outside of the Brooklyn synagogue. And it took a while to find him, but yeah, not, so not a Trump supporter. He's wearing a red shirt in the surveillance picture, but he's not a Trump supporter. One week before the presidential election, a black church in Mississippi was burned in an arson attack. Vote Trump was written on the building. After much panic, an investigation revealed that the man responsible was a church member, Andrew McClinton, another man who happens to be of the permanent tan, which is irrelevant except to say that he burned his own church to try to paint Trump voters as racists. In November of 2016, a Muslim student at the University of Louisiana said two white racist Trump supporters brutally assaulted her, ripped off her hijab, and robbed her. The story went viral, but it was a lie. Media never identified her name. Well, they never shared her name with the public after the hoax was revealed. She's University of Louisiana student, made up the story about attack and stolen hijab. This is reported at klfy.com, klfy.com. Another one, 
Uh, Trump and his supporters were blamed for a spate of anti-Semitic KKK and Nazi graffiti on the campus of Nassau Community College on Long Island, also in late 2016. The student responsible for doing these crimes? Jaskirat Saini. ABC 7 New York reported on this story. Not a Trump supporter. In December of 2016, a Muslim woman said she was attacked by three white Trump supporters. She said that... um, they tried to rip off her head covering. Her name is Yasmin Siwide. Care said Muslims are under tremendous stress and pressure, which results in them faking hate crime attacks on themselves. She's 18 years old, and this didn't happen. It did not happen. And Care is, you know, providing cover for her by saying she, you know, she's under a lot of pressure. That's why she keeps painting Trump supporters as these horrible racists. I know you're probably thinking, well, that's a lot, but. I'm not done. On September 2018, a black woman in Long Island said Trump supporters confronted her and told her she didn't belong there. Her car tire was slashed the next day and a hateful note was left behind saying, go home. Well, her name's Adwoa Lewis, and she made up the whole story. Reporting on this from NBC New York. Again, hardly a conservative outlet. November of 2018, students at Goucher College demanded social justice training and safe spaces after racist Nazi and KKK graffiti was found on campus. Someone even wrote the names of black students. Trump was blamed. Finn Arthur, a black student, was actually responsible. They conducted a blackout on the Tosin campus. This is reported by Baltimore Sun. They wanted special treats and, uh, you know, little, little, little gifts from the university. And the fact that they couldn't get them prompted them to fake their own hate crime attack. In 2017, St. Olaf College was roiled by mass protests in response to anti-black notes found across the campus. Class was canceled, admin caved to demands, an investigation found that Samantha Wells, a black victim of one of the notes, fabricated the entire incident. This is from the StarTribune.com. In November of 2016, a Philadelphia neighborhood was rattled when property was vandalized with pro-Trump and anti-black messages. William Tucker, a black man, was identified as the vandal through CCTV footage. This was reported in the Philly Voice. In November of 2016, a black female student at Villanova University in Pennsylvania said a group of white men yelling Trump knocked her to the ground on campus. However, a police and university investigation was halted after they kind of thought, hey, this doesn't sound quite right. It was halted because the student didn't want to pursue the matter. So Villanova University ended its probe because after she was knocked down and they started asking her questions and doing an investigation, she decided she wasn't interested in pursuing the matter. So another hoax. In November 2017, near Kansas City State, so K-State University, a black man's car was vandalized with racist messages. Class was canceled. Students held demonstrations. Dontarius Williams later admitted to the police that he did it to himself. And the police didn't even charge him. Think of all the man hours the police wasted on investigating that before he admitted it. And then they didn't charge him with anything. That's reported at Kansas.com. Kansas.com, again, Hardly a Breitbart. And when I say hardly, I mean not Breitbart, like to the for the furthest away in the other direction you can run for news reporting. The, that's the organizations that are telling us about all of this. Now, 
That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Not done. In autumn of 2018, K-State University, a note was left on an apartment that read, beware the N-word, live here, knock at your own risk. The victim admitted to police that she did it herself. It was the second time she had fabricated a hate incident in two years. Now, again, if she were prosecuted for doing this, she wouldn't keep doing it. Again, also, they didn't release her name. So if you protect her by not releasing her name and not prosecuting her, then we'll be hearing from her again at the next election, especially if Donald Trump wins. She'll have more notes stuck to her door that she wrote herself. University of Michigan student Haley Bass told the uh, the police that a Trump supporter attacked her by scratching her face in November of 2016. She said she was targeted for wearing a pin in support of UK Remain. As her story fell apart, she admitted that she scratched herself. Made up the hate crime. Scratched her own face. She was leaving her women's literature class and decided she was going to do a little hate crime to herself and scratch herself. What about the death threats to the Jewish community centers across the United States? You remember that. Juan Thompson, who is a reporter who worked for The Intercept, was convicted for the hoax threats and other offenses. That's justice.gov. This was a federal crime because he did it across states. You remember when that happened, everybody just stopped talking about anti-Semitism. I was, I was all over the radio talking about how there was, uh, you know, not anti-Semitism and that there was actually more anti-Semitism on display during President Obama's tenure, how the anti-Semitic uh, incidents were going down using data from the U.S. government agencies that actually track this stuff. And people were saying, well, you just you're defending anti-Semitism and you're you're ignoring a real crime because, you know, Republicans are so bigoted. No, actually, Republicans don't spend time faking crimes. And so. 2016. Muslim student at University of Michigan claimed she was attacked by a white man who threatened to burn her hijab. It never happened. Care said the attack is just the latest anti-Muslim incident reported since the election of Donald Trump as president. FreeP.com reports the story. The cops say the University of Michigan student lied about this man and that she could face charges. One day after, after the 2016 election, Alicia Long, a student at BGSU in Ohio, said that white males wearing Trump shirts threw rocks at her and hurled racial slurs. The alleged incident sparked rage on campus and uni hosted a town hall. Long made the whole thing up. Last one I'll share with you, but there are just like so many more. I, we could do a whole two-hour show on these. One day after the 2016 election, I'm sorry, one on election night, Canadian Chris Ball said he was beaten by anti-gay Trump supporters in Santa Monica. His friend shared a photo on social media, noticed the immaculate watch. Police said he never filed a report and he didn't go to any hospitals in the area because it didn't happen. If you want to read this for yourself, it's on the Facebook page. We're going to be back with more right after these messages. Keep it here for more Stacey on the Right.
Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and, and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many Many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. This is Just a Minute with Stacy Washington. There's a new slogan out, You Are Enough. It's the latest foray into convincing people that self-love is the pathway to freedom and success. This is just repackaged self-esteem nonsense of the same variety preached by secular thought leaders a few decades ago. Instead of going to church, we are encouraged to go to sporting events in huge stadiums on Sunday or stay home and read the newspaper. Instead of studying the Word of God, we're told to meditate on ourselves while holding crystals and humming. How ridiculous. Joy comes from knowing who we are in Christ. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So in essence, the opposite of everything we've heard. The meek will inherit the earth. Confidence comes from working hard and living a godly life. Instead of looking for self-esteem, look for God in His scriptures, in His creation, in serving people. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. Here are a few favorite findings from our new Fox News poll. Who won the government shutdown? By an eight-point margin, voters say House Speaker Nancy Pelosi looked stronger politically than President Trump after the shutdown ended. Still, Trump's numbers didn't take a hit. 46% approve, up a touch from during the shutdown. Next, one in four has a positive view of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's more. She's been in office less than two months. McConnell starting his sixth Senate term, yet AOC is already almost as well known. Last one, 25% overall and 46% of Trump voters believe God wanted Donald Trump to become president. The question comes from a recent interview where White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said she believed that's what God wanted. I wondered how many people agreed. It's also fun when I have no idea how a question will turn out. That made this a favorite. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your poll Paris. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The whole point of Congress existing is to provide oversight of the executive branch. So through good reporting by 60 Minutes, there's an allegation by the acting uh, FBI director at the time that the deputy attorney general was uh, basically trying to do an administrative coup, take the president down through the 20th. Fifth Amendment process. The Deputy Attorney General denies it. So I promise your viewers the following, that we will have a hearing about who's telling the truth, what actually happened. Mr. Cabe, you, you remember, was dismissed from the FBI for leaking information to the press. So you got to remember the source here. But the entire 2016 election needs to be looked at. Mueller's doing his part to look at Trump. Apparently, it's going to be up to Congress to look at what the FBI and DOJ did 
uh, uh, regarding uh, abuses of power against President Trump. Yeah, uh, it's actually a really, really pertinent question to ask, isn't it? Welcome back to the show. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thanks for being with us. Uh, that was Senator Lindsey Graham talking about this attempted coup. So I've held off discussing the issue. Mainly because I so there's there's a certain level of incredulity that attaches itself to watching someone who was, you know, deputy this or that or head of this or that of some major government uh, entity like the FBI, watching them discuss how simply hearing someone be critical of their organization is enough for them to launch numerous investigations into that person or the admission, honestly, it's really the admission that he did things because he didn't like someone. And if you think about what that means for us as a country, if you think about what that means uh, for any person who maybe, maybe you don't like something that the government is doing, maybe you're interested in seeing the government do something different. If a worker, a government worker, finds out that these are your feelings, they might want to launch investigations into you if they feel like you're powerful enough to threaten what they're doing. And that's what we're seeing here. Um, I, I'm, I'm really, I just don't understand why people aren't being hauled away in cuffs. We see a lot of the associates of President Trump going, you know, in, in, into the, the firing squad but we don't see anything in the way of people on the left getting prosecuted. So I'm, I, you know, again, it's not about tit for tat or saying, you know, you, this one should be prosecuted because that one was, but if there was wrongdoing, shouldn't that be something that everyone's concerned with regardless of your political affiliation? So there's, um, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack as it pertains to that. And there's been some reaction and, you know, of course, we're going to we're, we're, we've discussed some of that before, but it's I want to go over some of the ones who've been in the spotlight, the small coup group, if you will, DOJ and FBI officials who've been in the spotlight. And I want to run down this list and kind of so you can kind of feel the, the weight of how many people are involved in this. You've got Andrew McCabe, who was fired for lying. He's under investigation himself and 60 minutes gave him the bully pulpit. Now, if I broke a story here in St. Louis that had national implications and I reached out to 60 Minutes and said, I want to come on and talk about this story, they wouldn't have me on. And I don't take it personally. They are going to choose to have on whoever they want. And obviously, Andrew McCabe is a household name and he's going to draw a lot of eyeballs to the programming. But what is the probative value of permitting someone who is a proven liar and is under investigation himself to impugn the presidency? Well, it has no probative value. It has salacious value. It has uh, the, you know, the kind of train wreck quality to it. But why should any of us take anything he says at face value when we know he's a liar? And, you, and I know critics will say, well, Donald Trump's a liar. According to you, you're operating off of information that is just biased and not true. And I'm not talking about the crowd size things. I love it when people try to act like because the president was too proud to admit that his crowd size wasn't as big as someone else's, that that makes everything else he says simply not true. 
Is that the way it works for you as well? Because I think we could all stand to have that strong, bright light shine down upon us if, if that's the, the standard we're operating on. So then you have James Comey. He was fired, and rightly so. I've said it again and again and again. I stand by it. He was fired for all the right reasons. If you don't like your boss, if you don't want to work with him, if you don't want to take a meeting with him alone, if you suspect that he has committed crimes, if you're working to undermine his authority and the, the, his administration of, of anything that you are supposed to do for him, you should be fired. It's not, it's, not even, it's not even an issue in the private sector when a boss finds out that someone who works underneath them doesn't like them and doesn't want to work with them, there is a parting of the ways. Usually that boss will make it clear to the person that they should start looking elsewhere so they don't have to be fired. But in this case, James Comey was only there to ruin Trump's administration. So, of course, he was fired. And he's under investigation as well. Sally Yates was fired. Peter Strzok fired and under investigation. Bruce Orr demoted and under investigation. John Carlin resigned. James Baker demoted and then he resigned. James Rybicki resigned. Lisa Page resigned. Should have been fired. Mike Cortan was fired. He says he resigned. And Mary McCord resigned. So those are all the people who've been involved with this. McCabe also told NBC News that he informed the gang of ape about opening this criminal investigation on President Trump. So, you know, who all is who who's all involved in it? Who everybody that has something to do with this is either under investigation or and and also the president's reaction to it. The president has tweeted out that Obviously, people are trying to execute a coup and that these these individuals are dishonest. And I think he has every right to be really upset and really flummoxed over, um, you know, the, the way that he's being treated as president. Now, Andrew McCabe is still on his press junket running around. He he just so I don't I don't mind admitting that he really. He annoys me. The way he talks and the way he looks annoys me. Probably because I know he's been lying and he's trying to undermine the president. But also because I don't have a lot of respect for people who just, um, they, they take their role and they turn it into their identity. And then they start operating in ways that are completely outside of what they're supposed to do. And instead of admitting that, they just keep going further and further down the rabbit hole. So there's this FBI inspector general's report that pointed out that, you know, they had accused McCabe of lying and that's why they fired him. And so he says that he insinuates that this report was a pretext to fire him, you know, a report that was made up as a pretext. And I I just ask you just for one second, doesn't that sound like him accusing someone else of exactly what he did to President Trump? He used President Trump's criticism of the FBI as a pretext with which to orchestrate what would effectively be the firing of the president of the United States. I mean, let that sink into you for a minute. He was promoted. And then he used that job to try to unseat the president. 
because the president criticized his workplace. He says he's suing the FBI, um, that he's, you know, he's obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in the background, but you can't, I, I just, I refuse to be sold into this bill of goods that somehow Donald Trump did something to warrant this behavior from all of these people. You know, if it was one or two people, then you could say, well, you know, he picked a fight with somebody and the person's fighting him back. And, you know, you you have to have good relations with people. You have to work as hard as you can to get along with them. And this is something that's hard for every human being. I don't care who you are. It takes a lot of work to get along with other people. And Donald Trump's not used to playing nice in the sandbox because he's always been in charge. And when working with these government people who they really have a lot of power, he's seriously underestimated what they're kind what they would do as a backlash to him, especially if they felt threatened by him. But outside of anything he may have said or any, you know, nerves he may have rattled, we're talking about an orchestrated effort by a group of people to try to end the presidency of the of a man they didn't like from a political party that they hate because their person lost. Basically to smack the American people back for daring to vote in someone that they didn't like. It was as if they said, I'm not going to work with you. And we've seen this all over. Liberals do this all the time. If a newspaper hires a conservative opinion writer, everyone in the newsroom will get together and have a meeting with their boss and say, we're not working with that person. Like they're in charge. Now it's the boss's fault. It's the editor's fault for not saying, well, then anyone who won't work here because we're going to have one dissenting voice should pack up their stuff and get out. No severance. You just quit. You're quitting if you say you're not going to work with this person. But instead, they'll say, well, after a backlash in the newsroom, we've decided we're not going to bring on a conservative voice. And so these liberals at the FBI tried to do the same thing. We're not going to work with Donald Trump. We don't care if he's been elected by the American people. We're not going to work with the likes of he. And then they tried to do do something to get rid of him. Only it's not working, praise God, because they're unable to control the entire United States. Yes, they control the FBI and the DOJ. Yes, they've got the media in their back pocket, but they don't control the entire country and they can't stop the American people from electing whoever we want to elect, regardless of what they think about it. It's so bad. It's so bad that even Savannah Guthrie called Andrew McCabe out on his garbage. She grilled him. And she used the FBI inspector general's report to do it. So she, she wasn't having any of it. Even Savannah Guthrie, who is a hardcore liberal, when she looks at Andrew McCabe, she sees someone who was fired for lying and has no veracity. So she had him on the show so she could poke holes in all of his, his, his prognostications and, and make fun of him. So as we're closing out here, um, I also want to just touch on Again, we've, we've been weaving in and out of the Jesse Smollett case. And I've been kind of just, I'm not going to lie, I've been enjoying um, the slow burn on this thing. Now everyone's waking up to the fact that maybe not only did he do a hoax, but that he did it because his job was in jeopardy. So they slashed his role on the TV show and apparently... He's going to be indicted on a felony. So they don't want him on there now. Um, according to production sources reporting to TMZ, 
Jesse was supposed to have nine scenes in a big musical number in the second to the last episode, which is being shot right now. But five of his scenes have been cut and his musical number has been 86. As for the remaining four scenes, he's told that, that apparently he's no longer the focus. The scene features an ensemble, meaning he's flanked by a number of cast members and his duties have been pared down. Instead of working every day this week, TMZ is reporting that he's working Friday, maybe Thursday. He's not doing any rehearsing. And uh, the writers are busy making edits. And that as o- over the past 24 hours, just the past 24 hours, the script has undergone multiple revisions. So, <laughs> you know, he could get in there and shoot those real quick. But his case is headed to a grand jury as early as Tuesday of next week. Law enforcement sources say the focus is presenting evidence that could lead to a felony indictment against him for allegedly filing a false police report. He should have done like the other fake race hustlers, hoax purveyors. He should have just put it on Twitter or something. And then when the police came calling to ask, what happened to you? We hear you've been you've been assaulted. He could have just said, I don't have any interest in pursuing the attack. He would have gotten the publicity, but none of the felony indictment. I am, I'm just, again, flabbergasted that grownups are so upset by someone they don't like being in charge that they just, they have to make stuff up. So the artist Sabo actually struck again back in, uh, in, in, in California. Sabo makes parody movie posters and he made one with Jesse Smollett's face on it. It's actually... It looks like he's wearing um, Black Panther garb, but it's Jesse Smollett's face. And it says, Jesse Smollett, Black Prankster, for your consideration, best fictional story. (laughs) So embarrassing. He did another one that says, for your consideration, Jesse Smollett for best actor in a drama, Black K. Klansman. This is MAGA country, and it's Jesse Smollett looking sad like he's crying with a Make America Great Again hat on. So he's being mocked. And, um, of course, Kamala Harris had a rough day. She was asked about Jesse Smollett and her tweet about it, and she started stuttering. She said it was a modern-day lynching, and now she's having to walk her comments back. So, look, I, you know, just don't make stuff up. That's, that's, that's what's so helpful. Um, don't make stuff up. <laughs> so that's the show for today. Thank you so much for being here. God bless from the heartland. See you tomorrow.